so in in fifth grade um i had a solution i'm going to take away the pain and i went into the medicine cabinet one day after school and took all my pills because i knew it would end my life and my mom found me there and rushed me to the hospital welcome to the depression files where we talk about everything related to mental health from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, good evening. Hey, I want to welcome... Mr. Mike Vini to the Depression Files. Mike is an author, a drummer, a motivational speaker, and a mental health advocate. Mike, hey, welcome to the show. Hello, and hello to your listeners out there. Mike, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Um, recently, we were both at the Healthy Voices Conference in Chicago, and I had read about your bio because I know you were given a little... Um, kind of a, uh, a motivational talk at the conference. And right when I read your bio, I was like, I have got to meet Mike. Um, so I'm thrilled to get you on the show. I don't know if you remember, but you, I think you got to the conference a little late because you were probably coming from another conference. You yep. had your <laughs> lunch in your hand, and I like practically tackled you before you got to a table. And I was like, Mike, right? I got to talk to you. So again, I want to apologize for like slamming you like that right as you got to the conference but that was a pretty incredible conference huh yeah no it was an amazing conference and you know what no that that was a beautiful thing because uh you know you you got my attention and if i'm remembering correctly we sat and ate together yeah um and and got to chat about a few things learn, learn we have a lot in common exactly but yeah it was a very amazing conference. Um, it, it was nice because uh, for those of you listening about the Healthy Voices Conference, in my opinion, it was a lot of the uh, advocates, the most popular advocates in different areas of chronic health conditions that came together and were giving lots of different presentations and workshops and hanging out and networking and all that stuff. And it was just a beautiful experience. Yeah. I, you know, I heard one advocate describe it and I thought it was so um accurate they just said it's that the person had said they had been to many many conferences but this was just like the one and only one that had such an emotional connection to it everybody was so passionate and such caring people yeah so you know i mentioned in the introduction uh you're an author a drummer motivational speaker and you advocate around mental health so I got to see some of your talk, which was really cool, and you incorporated a lot of drumming into the piece you did at the conference. But one piece I did not get to hear at the conference that I would love to start with is just I know you have your own history and struggle um, of mental illness, and I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, when those struggles started. Sure. Um, when I talk about mental health, I'm talking about thoughts, feelings, and behavior, and for me, uh, they manifested as behavior challenges as a child. And I would act out at home um, with aggression, anger, uh, hitting my little brother, just just misbehaving. And it was, you know, every every child misbehaves. But when it becomes a constant thing, it, it's a real, real burden on, on families and and even even on myself. And so my parents, um, 
did the best they could to get me help through psychologists and, and different doctors. But um, the problems just kept getting worse no matter what they tried. And this um, eventually led to me getting expelled from three schools for behavior problems. I mean, starting in fourth grade, I got expelled two times in the fourth grade. I think I'm pretty cool for that now, but you know, (laughs) and, and, um, what types of behaviors got you expelled in the fourth grade? Oh, I, great question. I don't think I've ever shared this on a podcast. So I, um, I had this teacher, uh, a nun, sister Pat, because they put me in Catholic school thinking the nuns would straighten me out. And, um, I had a smile on my face and she didn't like that because I was sitting there smiling and she told me to wipe the smile off my face. And, and I said, no. And you know how that works in school. Everybody goes, Ooh, like something's going down. <laughs> and, uh, and she, she, she approached me and, and started yelling at me or talking down to me. And I got angry and said some things back to her that I shall not repeat on this podcast. And she then proceeded to grab me by the arm and pull me out of my desk to get me out of the room and I, I punched her as hard as I could wow. and she threw holy water on me and, and called me the devil and I threw it back at her and said put this on your wrinkles and so um <laughs> yeah I, I I I have a defiance problem which it's at some point we should talk about too because it's actually become one of my strengths um after that I was expelled and my parents then put me in the local public school where um ironically my uncle was the principal and um, they thought it'd be good for his career, I think, as a growing administrator and good for me. But uh, long story short, in about three weeks after several fights and a desk mysteriously flying out of my hands in the direction of my teacher, Ooh. I was expelled from that school. So I, I, when I snapped, it wasn't even like – I mean I just had no, no respect for authority. It was just like you, you know, if a teacher approached me and got in my face, I was, I was, I was ready to fight. And it wasn't even like, you know, talk back. It was fight. And the best part of fourth grade is after that, I had home tutoring for the rest of the year, one hour a day. Loved fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) So my summer between fourth and fifth grade, I ended up going into my first rage. And for those of you who are listening who don't understand what a rage is, it's one thing to get angry. We all get angry. But with a rage, you are just angry for an extended amount of time. Um, could be hours and just acting out with intense anger nonstop. And I did that and ended up being put in a mental hospital when I was, um, you know, eight years old, basically. And so this was the summer after fourth grade. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a rough experience for me because mental health challenges on any level are confusing and frustrating, especially when you're a kid. So yeah, I I was in fourth grade and you know, that year happened and then I'm in the mental hospital. So it was a very scary time because I knew something was wrong with me. And you know, the hardest part is knowing that something is wrong with you, but you don't know what. And I knew that even though like they told me like I was just there to get better and stuff in, in my mind, I just was like, you know what? I'm crazy. You know, I, can, I know what that is. Can you tell us what it was specifically that got you to all of a sudden be in a mental hospital? Because I know, like you said, kids get angry. Kids even have out, um, you know, um, some some rage spells where they, um, you know, kind of explode. But what mm-hmm. was it that made somebody say, like, wow, we got to bring you in? Well, I was raging at home for hours 
and my parents could not stop me. So typically, again, if a child acts out, the parents have enough control or, or systems or techniques to, you know, get things in order. So the child calms down, stabilizes, yeah. they, they can talk to them or punish them, whatever they do. But in this particular case, um, my parents tried to stop me and I just did not stop. And like, were you like swinging at them and hitting them, I, throwing I, things? I was, I was swinging. I was, I was hitting things, destroying things in my bedroom, throwing stuff out the window, like just wow. out of control. And um, did they end up calling a crisis line, or what did they do then? I, you know, I think they they forced me basically in the car and okay. locked the door and, and and got me there. And right. um, you know, thinking about it now, it was just so scary. You know, and in one sense, um, like even right now, I'm, I'm, I'm so far from that age, but I can think about how it felt like I felt this just overwhelmed with anger. And so um, I finished my time in the hospital after three weeks and oh, I learned the secret to getting out of the mental hospital. There's a secret. OK, the secret is you have to have a good coping skills story that you've got the coping skills. And as long as you're persuasive with that story, they let you out of the hospital. That's my secret. <laughs> so <it. laughs> they, they let me out. And in fifth grade, I was put in special education and I started to experience um, depression. And again, I did not know what it was because right. it, even if you're an adult, you might not know what it is. And so for a lot of us who struggle, I, I've learned that like, we just want a solution to the pain. How do I take away the pain? How do I take away the pain? So in, in fifth grade, um, I had a solution. I'm going to take away the pain. And I went into the medicine cabinet one day after school and took all my pills because I knew it would end my life. And my mom found me there and rushed me to the hospital um, Wow! to get my stomach pumped. So I had a big suicide attempt at age 10. So, I mean, this is just the beginning for me, you know. Yeah. And um, around the time I started playing drums in school and I love the drums, but you know, you can only play drums so much and no parent wants their kid playing drums all day. So, you know, I I couldn't always play drums, but, uh, between, um, you know, school and and home when I wasn't drumming, I I was just angry or in a rage or depressed. And, um, I did okay after that suicide attempt, but in seventh grade, I started raging again. And I want to say something for the record here in case we have any parents listening. This is my opinion. When you are 12, 13 years old and you're in a rage, that's no longer a rage. It's called violence. And I hate to admit it on your show, but I was violent towards my, my family, towards my younger brother. I just was, was out of control. And so there I was in seventh grade, just out of control. I started self-harming and in a lot of ways, like I say that I was imploding internally and exploding externally. And so eventually I got put in a mental hospital this time for six months they weren't buying my coping story. Uh, and thing. this was, this was in seventh grade now. Yeah. In seventh grade, I had to spend Christmas in a, in a mental hospital and you know, it was, uh, inpatient where you're there day and night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, and eventually they gave me weekend passes, which I okay. liked. I got the weekend passes and my parents, they just wanted to do uh, family stuff on the weekends. Right. But I just basically p- locked myself in my bedroom and played drums to Red Hot Chili Peppers and LL Cool J. Like that's what I did. And then go back to the mental hospital on Monday. That was seventh grade. Right. And so, How are you feeling as a seventh grader? You know, like you have more, more knowledge as a seventh grader than you did your first time being hospitalized. 
were were you still kind of scared and and a lot of unknowns or were you kind of like here we go again been here done it, this it, 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 it's kind of like here we go again you yeah. know and and that's it was scary because you know i again didn't know why this kept happening right. why i couldn't control myself like everyone else yeah but i also I also felt like it was so familiar to go through the whole intake thing, you know? And so I I was there in between seventh and 10th grade. um, You know, I was on a first name basis with the local police because I was constantly in crisis. I was constantly in the emergency room um, for acting out in in some way, shape or form. And by the time I finished uh, 10th grade, I had been hospitalized for extended periods three times, expelled from three schools, several suicide attempts, self-harming and violent at home. And I was like on so many different drugs, you know, and uh, all the while my younger brother, Jason, is doing just fine. Jason's got friends. Jason's got good grades. I just couldn't keep it together. And the the big change happened that summer because I think at this point my parents kind of like realized that, well, I'm just unique, you know, after a while, like they they, they expect something's going to happen. But my mother um, asked me that summer, she said, what would make you happy? And I thought this was a trick question because moms like to ask you trick questions. And my response was, I want to play the drums all day. And she said, let me see what I can do. Wow, cool. And I'm like, hmm, like what's going on here? And so she basically spent a week or so um, figuring it out, but got me accepted into a performing arts high school in Long Island where I could play drums about half the day. And it was the first time in my life that I ever felt a sense of hope or a sense of happiness because the drumming was the thing that just calmed me down. Still the thing that calms me down now, you know? Probably a um, sense of success too, right? Like not being successful in school until this point and and thriving and being successful must have been a new feeling for you too, I bet. Absolutely, yeah. No, I had never felt success. And I've also didn't feel wanted by others like nobody really wanted to hang out with me I felt like or or if they did they just kind of hung out with me because I was there with others and they tolerated me but this was the first time where it was like I had friends that wanted to hang out with me and that was a new thing for me and it was a beautiful thing and ironically my grades started to go up the amount of medication I was being given was getting reduced with my psychiatrist and basically I didn't have any more outbursts after that that is incredible. And I have to tell you, as it's very inspiring for me as an educator in an arts school. And that's right. <laughs> and, and I feel like you're telling the story of one of my students who, who loves drumming and he's had a lot of challenges behaviorally. And I've been trying to work hard with him and get him into drumming. And then he wasn't you know, wasn't successful in the band class again because of behaviors. Uh, but his mom sounds kind of like yours too. She was like, whatever it takes, I'm getting you a set of drums. He's got the marching drum set. He's got the standard set. And uh, yeah, so that is really cool. You found the thing that got you excited to go to school too, I bet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even now, I mean, I just want to say this right now, I still take drum lessons. You know, I've got you know, after we finished recording this, I got to get on the drum pad in my hotel room and do some work from my drum teacher because I got to practice. So as a professional drummer who's incredible on the drums, you're still taking lessons, still taking lessons because, yeah. you know, it's like there's always something new to learn, new challenges that I have. And, you know, what? I love it. It's like picture me 
you know, tonight after we finished recording in, in a hotel room with my drum pad, yeah. going at it on the bed, hope, hoping no one else hears it, <laughs> and uh, and just just with a big smile on my face. That, oh, I'm that's, loving it. And that's, it my, that's my medication. That is so cool, and it, it shows also that about having a growth mindset, right? Like you could be like, hey, I got – you know, all I got to do is work on this myself and, and I'm a professional drummer already, but you're still working with somebody. And I remember hearing about, you know, the Michael Jordans of the world who still work with coaches and Tiger Woods who still know they can improve their game and up their game and they work with coaches. Well, you know, I, I just love something you said. Now, I wanted to say this growth mindset. I, as an adult, have really adopted a growth mindset. And especially as someone who lives with depression, that has been really important and critical in my recovery because, you know, to just find solutions to help yourself when you're in a bad place is really hard. It's really hard. And to constantly have this growth childlike curiosity about, okay, this is my depression. It is what it is. What can I try from a new perspective uh, to help myself has been so critical to my improvements in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so back to you, like, so you're going to an arts high school, you're playing the drums half days. And so it sounds like, does that, uh, speak to the rest of your years in high school successful? And you mentioned grades going up. Yeah. I mean, I think the highlight of high school, and this is probably the first time I'm saying this and thinking about it was, um, in the yearbook, I got most talented you know, so, so, you know, so somebody thought something of me, yeah, but, um, that's, that's awesome. Congratulations. And how cool is that coming from fourth grade being expelled, you know, and that kind of, and hospitalized for, for rage outbursts. And, and now you're most talented in high school. Yeah. That's it it incredible. was a beautiful thing. And, you know, it gave me something that a lot of people struggle with. Like it's one thing to struggle with depression, which I do. But it's another thing to also struggle with self-esteem issues at the same time. And they're actually two different things. And, you know, depression can obviously lower your self-esteem. And that's what it did for me. And so, you know, having, you know, this this beautiful experience to play music and, and to to raise my self-esteem through drumming was was a great thing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think you're exactly right. And especially when you're going through a depressive bout like the negative self-talk that, that we get into and ruminations that we can't stop. I mean, I was telling myself what an awful administrator I was. Why was I even in this field? And, um, and, and an awful husband and father. And those thoughts are really tough. And it's a huge hit on the self-esteem, especially if you already have the personality type of somebody who's hard on yourself anyhow. Yes. No, no, it is. And, and you, you said a very important thing there. I mean, as people, we are just generally all hard on ourselves, I think, you know, yeah. it's a common thing in this culture. And when you have depression, when you live with a, a, a mental health challenge of any type, it just makes it significantly worse and complicates it. So that's why having a, a growth mindset, a very aggressive growth mindset has been very important to me in, in working on my recovery every single day. Right, right on. So you end up graduating from high school. Yes. What happens after that? I shaved my head. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> no, your, I. 
<laughs> you like that, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I shaved my head. No, I actually went to college, and I spent about five years in college. I didn't finish. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't finish is because my career was taking off as a drummer, and I was just working too much to be able to do school. So my parents were okay with it, actually. And, you know, I just went on to play drums and teach drum lessons and do workshops. And, you know, I never got to play with a major band, but that was never my uh, goal. My goal was just just to make a living being behind the instrument. Like I didn't care who saw me, you know, or, or, or my status. And so I got to play a lot of singer songwriters in New York city and play on different recordings and stuff. And, uh, really, really important to me. And it was a great career. Yeah. It's fantastic. And when did you, uh, when did you jump into the world of advocacy? (laughs) When did I jump into it? I I didn't jump into it. I was forced into it. Really? Uh, Okay. Yes, I Tell was bullied into it. Um, you like that? Oh, Mike yeah. Feeney was bullied into becoming an advocate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2011, I um, had a mental health breakdown, and I don't know necessarily what caused it. I just know that I was starting to get into rages, self-harm again, um, actually enter a place that felt very familiar because of my childhood. So this and was well was, out of college time now? Yeah, well talking? out of college. I'm talking 2011, so we're talking like I was yeah. you know, around age 30 or whatever. And so... And did it feel like this came out of nowhere, or was this like a depressive state that kept getting worse and worse? That's, that's a great question. I don't... Because of my therapist, I should say this, I don't believe that things just come out of nowhere. Uh-huh. I, th- I think there were things that had been there and just laying dormant for a while. Right. And it was just the right season for the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how I see it looking back. I think it was just, just things leading up to that that I wasn't paying attention to. Because part of the – let me go back to high school for a second. Part of the uh, beauty of finding this school and playing drums was that in a lot of ways I thought that I was done with the depression. I thought I was done with mental health challenges. It was like, Oh, I found my thing. I'm not going to have any more problems. So I was thrown off in 2011 when all these things came back. It was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. I thought we were done with this, you know? And so, um, so you really hadn't had any kind of depression from the point of high school until that point that that you were aware of at least. Yeah. I mean, I had occasional, moments of anger, but nothing, nothing that, uh, you know, was, was really worth, you know, calling a therapist about Uh had, had some, some issues with women, but you know, I don't know, typical breakup stuff. And I I can't, I can't find the right person stuff, you know, the the typical uh, stuff we all go through, but yeah, so this comes out of nowhere was what it felt like. And so what I did is, um, it's kind of like me knowing that you do some kind of work in mental health. It's like, I made this call to this woman named Cheryl, who I had known worked in mental health. And she knew me through drumming. And I said, look, um, I called her up and I said, look, I'm going to die. I need help. And she, I don't know, she just didn't like respond the way I wanted her to. She was kind of like, Mike Vini, what's up? How are you? And I'm like, it's not that kind of call. I'm in pain. I'm going to die. And she's like, wow, what's going on? How's life? And I'm like, oh, my, like, you're not getting this lady. I need some help here. (laughs) Yeah. And and part of me is angry because it's like she works in mental health. Like, come on. Right. So, you know, I I, I finished the call, whatever. And then the next day she did what I call adult bullying, where she um, 
emailed me and CC'd a bunch of people I know and asked me to be a mental health speaker at her conference. Wow. And I'm thinking in my head, I don't want to deal with these people. You know, I'm not one of these people. I'm just going through a rough time. And I said, you know what? Let me put the date on my calendar. Let me do the event. They're going to give me money. I like that. Right. And once I'm done, I don't have to deal with these crazy mental health people. And so I, I did the event. And, and now I, I, all I remember was like I cried most of the time. That's all I remember. I was on stage just crying. While presenting. Yeah. And I got a standing ovation. Wow. And with, within a year, I was speaking around the country about mental health at major conferences. Oh, my goodness. So you literally got bullied into this. I got bullied into it. And there's a point I had to surrender and say, you know, sometimes in life, you know, there are always things we want, right? But sometimes you're given a set of circumstances that are beautiful mm -hmm. and you can surrender to that or you can resist it. And I said, you know what, maybe, maybe the key to me finding happiness is to run towards my mental health challenges rather than run away. Right. And so that's when I decided to become an advocate. And I promised myself no matter where my life went, I would continue speaking about mental health publicly till the day I die. Wow. And that was a contract with myself to prevent me from dying by suicide. Yeah. Wow. That is a, that's a cool story about how you got into the advocacy work. You kind of skimmed over and I'm really curious what that 2011 kind of rage and, and depressive situation was like for you. Well, you know, internally, externally, I mean, I don't know. I was really nasty to people, <laughs> you know, okay. I was re really mean. Um, I, I was self-harming a lot and, and just in a lot of emotional pain. But what I think was happening was I wasn't really in touch with my emotions. And I swore up and down in my head that I was completely in touch with my feelings and knew who I was as a person. You know, we all like to think that sometimes about ourselves. Right. And, and, and I didn't realize that there were looking back, there were so many things going on under the surface about where I was at in life, comparing myself to others, seeing that, um, maybe, you know, friends that were the same age, I thought were doing much better than me yeah. and were in these beautiful relationships. And I was really struggling and just, comparing myself. And, and I realized that, um, you know, there was a lot of deep emotional pain that just, I never even explored and it just came to the surface. It just came to the surface. And the interesting thing about like, uh, stuff that we bury is that it comes out in different ways. Oh yeah. You know, it comes out sideways. <laughs> it comes out sideways. And it, this was just coming out left and right. And I, I realized at that point that there's more going on than I even think here. Right. And I need to get help. Need to get help. So how long did it take you from the point uh, of realizing, like, this is getting serious, I need help, and the time you reached out to the woman you were talking about? Because I give you kudos, because that is tough to reach out when, when in that state. It is. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. Part of me obviously wanted to die and was was attempting to and and plotting it but there's another part of me that just didn't want to and knew that there was something better out there and that little part of me was the part of me that reached out to her and i'm so grateful that i did in fact side note um a few weeks ago she invited me back to speak at her conference oh, that's and, awesome. <laughs> and um in my book i dedicated my book to her actually it's written right in the wow that is um, so cool 
so yeah, so she she has been a, a major mentor in my life since. Yeah. And I realized looking back that she wasn't bullying me. She was forcing me to really address my issues at a deeper level and and, and she saw something in me that I didn't see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you still didn't mention really, I think, like how long it took you. How long were you living in that anger and that depressive state in 2011 before you took the step of reaching out? I'm going to say it was about six to eight months. Yeah, okay. And, that, and, and the thing about I'm it is glad I asked that because it almost sounded like you had this rage and you called her right away. But six to yeah. eight months of, of dealing with it, right? And, and that's a point I like to make a lot of times, particularly men who live – for years sometimes without being able to reach out or think they can handle it on their own and, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and men are tough. So I'm not going to reach out. And then it sounds like you almost felt like she kind of shut you down a bit, like didn't realize the place you were in and really needed help. Yeah, no. And and, and that can be tough too. And I went through that situation and one of the tweets I put out there often is, if somebody reaches out to you for help when they're dealing with depression, please be there for them and listen, because I essentially got shut down by the pers- first person I finally reached out to, and, and it was pretty devastating. Yeah, and, and I've heard stories, too, where that has made people spiral down worse, mm-hmm. y- you know, because it basically almost like validates the hopelessness. Right, right. So, uh yeah, no, it was it was a rough time. And, and, you know, I want to say this, too. I think those six to eight months, it was subtle. Like, you know, for those of us who live with depression, it doesn't mean we're constantly crying all the time or right. we're even constantly angry. It just manifests in, I'm going to say, as you said, sideways and in subtle ways. Yeah. And so I had to basically discover um, that there was a problem. Like one of the things I share in my presentations is that um, – Several years ago, I was in the gym working out, and I was doing push-ups, one of those push-up routines where you uh, move your hands to different positions, trying to impress some girl, and I ended up hurting my wrist, right? So I totally played it off, totally played it off, and went home. I was like, you got to get out of here, Mike, and I knew I had to ice my wrist, and if it didn't heal, I had to call a doctor. It was a sprain, a muscle strain, or a broken wrist, and so it healed, but depression and other mental health challenges don't work like that. Right. It's not like you just wake up one day and go, oh, I'm depressed. I should call somebody. Yeah, it's or just something put a Band-Aid that, on it. Wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> Wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and some people try to do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it's something you discover over time, and that's what happened with me. Yeah. So you had this first time, and that was your first time ever speaking in front of a group, huh? Yeah. And, and you're um, in tears. You get a standing ovation. And... What does that feel like when you see these people standing and you're practically in tears or you were in tears? What's going through your mind at that point? You know, I appreciate it. I feel grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. But, um, you know, part of it is just I feel emotionally drained, actually, after I present. Right. Because I feel like I've cried. Actually, uh, two days ago, I presented in Nashville at a big uh, conference for uh, mental health service providers. Same thing happened. I, I, I just started getting very emotional, cried yeah. several times during my, I, I, and I let it happen. You yeah. know, if I'm going to cry for two minutes, let me cry. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting because I got a standing ovation. I thought it was a great presentation. The person who hired me did. 
but you know, at the same time, I was just emotionally drained, like I had cried. So in one sense, I appreciated the validation from the audience, but in another sense, I can't really enjoy it because I've just let out so much emotion yeah. when I present. Right, right. And then was it pretty much an immediate decision that you had? Like, this is what I need to be doing. I need to be speaking to more groups like this. Well, it, it, it was a, it was a decision that I evolved into about over a month or two where I started thinking to myself, you know, we always ask ourselves questions like, what can I be the best in the world at? And I think the book was good to great. I'm a big reader of business books. Yeah. Good to great uh, talks about how to find what it is you do best. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you do that you can do differently than anyone else in the world that drives your economic engine and that will really help others? And I realized one day I was driving the car. I'll never forget it. I thought about the presentation and I said, you know, the thing that I can do better than anyone else is I can just be me. My mother told me for my entire life that I was a good speaker. My speech teacher in college pulled me out of class one day. was like, you make a great speaker. I have been gifted with mental health challenges. <laughs> you know, right. I'm going to say it like that. I've been gifted with yeah. it. And, and I'm also a drummer. And I said, you know what? Why don't you just throw those three things together in the pot and make that what you do? That was it. And right. I said, you know what? No one else can compete with that. There's, you know, it's going to be a long shot to find someone else that has those three traits. Well, and you're running with it and it's phenomenal. You know, like yeah. I said, it was just, it was only a short piece I got to see at the Healthy Voice Conference. Um, but it is a, a fascinating, incredible combination. And, uh, and I also think that, you know, any kind of hobby, an instrument, a sport, there's so much mindfulness, almost meditative piece to it, where, like you said, you're going to be on your drum pad later, and that's going to be your focus. And you're not going to let your mind wander around any struggles of, oh, no, I got to get up tomorrow early for the conference or what's going on with my wife at home. I really miss you're going to be focused on the drum pad. And that's what mindfulness is about. And I think that's a really healthy things as well um, as far as mental health goes. No, I, I agree with you. And can I add something to that, especially for um, uh, listeners who might be thinking, well, I'm not creative. I was actually just uh, reading. I finished Brene Brown's book, The Power of Vulnerability. Yeah. And that's on my reading list for the year to help with my recovery. See my growth mindset there. Yeah, awesome. And, you know, one of the things she said about creativity is that we're all creative. Even if you think you're not creative, we're just naturally creative. It's who we are as humans. And we sometimes start to think with our ego about being the best at something or not looking good to others. But at the end of the day, we can all be naturally creative. And one of the things I've learned about creativity, particularly in music, is that art is about conversations. It's about a conversation. And, you know, it's you and a canvas having a conversation. And, you know, when it comes to mental health, that's about conversations too. Oh, conversations yeah. in our head. And when we do art we have a great opportunity to redirect those conversations in our head that are spiraling in a really negative place into something that's beautiful and connect with the world. Yeah, absolutely. Really well said. I think you're spot on with that. Um, so tell us now how you got to um, authoring a book. Like that, <laughs> that must have been, that's a huge step. And, and how did you go, get to the decision of, I'm, I'm going to write a book and, how long did it take? Tell us about that process. Well, you know what? Ever since I spoke at that conference, 
I started writing down stuff because people would come up to me and say, man, you need to write a book. <laughs> people would come up to me after events, man, if you, if you got a book, I'm going to buy it. And personally, I didn't want to write a book. I'm like, no, I don't feel like writing this stupid <laughs> book. You know, and, and I'm like, what, what am I going to do? Put, put a, another mental health book out there with me next to a river, Mike Vini's recovery story. It's like, no, there's enough of that out there, you know? And, and so I don't believe that, you know, a lot of people think they, they want their story heard. I'm actually a believer in like, you know, I, I don't really think my story is that special. It's just my story. You know, if you, you want to hear it, great. But if not, that's okay. And so um, with a lot of influence from others, I won't say bullying this time because <laughs> okay. it was All a little right. lighter. Um, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that, you know what, I need to write a book because if I die tomorrow, I want people to still have the ability to access the stuff that I've been speaking about for years. Cool. And it's, you know, a lot of people have told me that my transforming stigma presentation has helped them. They've taken the handouts and brought them to their support groups and, and, and have brought them to their classes and college for psychology. So I said, you know what, let, let me write this into a book. And it took me about a good, really solid two years to really dig into it and get it to its final stages. And then I just hit publish, you know, wow. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> All right, cool. Did you have to search for a publisher then or did you self-publish or how did that publishing piece go? I, I am, I am self-published. The book is actually on amazon.com published by me okay. and I uh, sell a lot of books at events and stuff like that. And, and I want to just tell you the, the way I wrote the book, it's called Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero. And the reason I wrote it about superheroes is because, number one, that's a popular topic nowadays, being a superhero. Oh, yeah. And so many movies and stuff like that. Yeah. But the, the reality is I didn't want to say transform the stigma around mental health. I called it mental wellness because when we talk about mental illness, mental wellness is the opposite of that, getting to a good place mentally. Right. And so I wanted to uh, talk about how to really transform stigma. And so what I did is second half of the book breaks down stigma so a fifth grader can understand it. Because a lot of times when you're talking about these topics that we're talking about, they're confusing. They're very confusing. People use big words like resiliency and stuff. And I'm like, huh? Like, what does right, that mean? Right. So, so I'm, I'm a fan of like dumbing things down so like anybody can understand it. And so I wrote the book with that in mind, with the reader in mind that you might be struggling with mental health challenges, you might love someone, and there's this big stigma, this backpack in the room, and the way to get the backpack off or lighter is to just unpack it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do in the book. I'm looking forward to getting your book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, I did a, a little bit of uh, reading about your book, and I love how you named stigma, and you mentioned it earlier in this piece too, how stigma was, you broke it down into three pieces, thoughts, which are the stereotypes, feelings, which are the prejudice, and behaviors that are the discrimination. And I want to ask you a little bit about it. So I have heard some people say, not a lot, but I, I even heard NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, say, let's get away from the word stigma and let's talk about discrimination. And in my mind, I always say, let's talk about both, because if the stigma was gone, we wouldn't have the discrimination. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I just want to quote, I think it was, I got that, that definition from uh, Stephen Hinshaw, author of the book Mark of Shame. Okay. And, and, and that's, you know, one of the sources that I quoted actually in my book. I quoted him a lot, actually. Right. Hope, hope he doesn't come after me for that one. But no, <laughs> I, did, I did cite everything. But um, 
I, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, we, we have discrimination, but there's also thoughts and feelings, you know, the, the stereotypes and prejudice. For instance, you know, I tell people that I live with mental health challenges and they say to me, well, you don't seem like you do. When they say that, there's a stereotype in their mind of what someone with mental health challenges looks and acts like. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, feeling uncomfortable because, you know, you and I are coming into the room. People feel uncomfortable because, you know, we've got depression. Right. That That's, that's part of stigma right there. And so that's where I think we need to look at the whole issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one example I give of, of the stigma, too, that I still kind of chuckle at is um, I work in a school and I'm I'm open. I mean, I don't talk about all the advocacy work at school because I'm doing the school thing. But most of the staff and people know about the work I do on the side, the mental health advocacy work. And there was one one teacher who would come into my office and she'd walk all the way back by my desk and then she'd whisper, I read your latest blog post. <laughs> I'd be like, it's OK. You could you can say that a little louder. We don't have to whisper about it. So it's funny, even when people know that I am out and open about it, they're still whispering if it's about the depression. Yeah, and and which contributes to the stigma, by the way. I always tell people, like, we don't talk about allergies with whispering, yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> what about, you know, another thing that struck me, because I wrote a post recently about this as well. Can you talk about kind of the shame? And I know you talked about um, getting through that shame through self-care. Right, and so... I mean, if, actually, if you re- really want a, a good book on shame, The Power of Vulnerability that I just read by Brene Brown yes. really um, hit home for me, yep. especially as a man. That's a whole separate thing. But when it comes to mental health challenges, a lot of us feel ashamed that we are living with depression, yeah. anxiety, schizophrenia, whatever it is that you are living with. And, you know, sometimes I wonder what's worse, the challenge or that shame? Right. And what do you think the cause of that shame is? Well, I, I think it's really simple. I, I, I break this down in the book, actually. I think there's, there's two reasons for stigma. Number one is what I call the law of the tribe. And the law of the tribe is very simple. You can see where stigma begins in a kindergarten playground. The way kindergartners socialize is by forming groups. And the way they learn who is in the group is by learning who is not in the group. Mm. Typically, the kid who is not in the group is the weird one. Kindergarten right. say it all the time. You're weird. You're weird. You know, that's like the buzzword in kindergarten. Right, right. And, and so we bring that with us throughout our lives. And no one wants to be the weird one. Doesn't feel good. You feel ashamed. You're out of the group. So that's one of the reasons for stigma. And the other thing, in my opinion, is the law of confusion and frustration, as I was talking about before. Mental health challenges are confusing, and we as humans don't like things that we can't wrap our heads around. We get really mad. So you put that together, and I think that's the beginning of of shame right there. Right, right. And uh, another thing that I know you talk about in the book that I think is really critical, too, is just like the importance of of connecting with others. Yes. Um, And one way I've heard... depression described that I just love and I I didn't coin this myself either um, is just the the catch-22 of depression and it's like everything that you need to do to recover from depression is compromised by the very symptoms of depression you need to connect but you isolate (laughs) right you need to eat healthy but you either are eating overeating and and 
gaining weight or losing a ton of weight because you can't eat at all. Yes. And you're supposed to exercise, but you got no energy. I mean, just everything. And I think that's really part of what makes recovery so difficult. I, I think so. And, and, you know, one of the things that I have found, and this is, by the way, no means a prescription for anyone's challenges, but just my experience. The thing that I had to look for when I was looking up shame and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to talk about with that and explore is I had to say, what's the opposite of shame? So we're always talking about shame. What's the opposite? The opposite is pride and honor. So that means, oh, you feel good about yourself. How do you get to a place of feeling good about yourself? You start with that self-care. And one of the things I want to bring up about self-care is I did an article on it called How to Practice Self-Care Without Being Selfish on HealthCentral.com. And one of the things that I did, like when you write an article, you sound smart if you quote a study, right? right so right. I, uh, I found a study on self-care that said that of people with chronic health conditions, only five percent practice self-care that in my opinion is statistically zero meaning it's a bs term that we all throw out to each other but no one's doing (laughs) and i've called out many people on this and there's a difference between self-care and escape activities that's very very important to distinguish playing video games is not self-care you know um netflix is not self-care it's something yes you can do and we should do those things but being intentional about doing small things that grow you and nurture you. And that's the key is to figure out what those are and they're different for everyone. What I have found is that when you start doing one thing and you start feeling a little better about yourself, it naturally leads to you doing something else. Absolutely. I really, I like that distinction. Um, Although I might kind of try to utilize that with my wife now because I would love to be like sitting on the couch playing video games and just explaining it. It is my self-care. The doctor told me I have to have self-care, but uh, I don't think she'd go for that. (laughs) Um, Wow, cool. So if you were to say like name a few different people, because I bet this could be for absolutely everybody, but was there a target audience you were thinking of when you wrote this book? You know, I wrote it with one intention. I wrote it with the idea that someone might pick it up in the woods who's struggling and read, I don't know, maybe a chapter and then throw the book back down and get something out of it. That's it. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't trying to uh, appeal to a certain group. I was trying to um, appeal to people who were struggling and and their loved ones. And pretty much that's everybody, you know? So, um, that, that's who I was trying to, uh, uh, attract. What has happened though, the first week the book came out, we went to, um, in Amazon and the week of April 30th, we went to number one in children's health, number one in teen health and number one in mental illness for a few days. Wow. That is phenomenal. Yeah. It made me feel really good. Yeah. That's awesome. So if our listeners want a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to get to it? The best way is to go to Amazon.com and to type in Transforming Stigma. Right. That's it. Excellent. And I'm sure they could also plug in your name probably. And Vini is just V-E-N-Y. But I'll put all that in the, in the description of the podcast um, as well. Yeah. Uh, hey, another piece that I want to just touch on briefly, you talked about male depression. And can you talk about ways you think male depression are different than just depression in general? Oh, how much time we got for this? Um, It is a big topic. Well, first of all, I'm a man. And men, from what I am learning, express depression a lot of times through anger. Yeah. 
through violence. And we battle a level of shame or a, a certain type of shame that just women don't deal with. Right. And for a man, you know, we live in a world that there's a lot of social pressures on all of us. And we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. And for men, we want to feel masculine. That's, that's a good thing for us to feel masculine. But for many men, they just don't feel that way. And, and that emasculation is actually the foundation of a lot of depression for mm-hmm. men from what I observe, especially for myself. I know that times where I feel like less of a man are times when I'm in emotional pain. I don't know what to do with that. So I act out in some negative way. And going back to 2011, when I had my breakdown and, you know, what I learned since then was back then I was battling the feeling of emasculation that I had that had been with me my entire life. Mm. And so unless you can become aware of that and own up to it as a man, you're not even going to begin to be able to explore your own depression. Right. That's big. The other piece I wanted to touch on is being a black male. Um, So I'm a white male and, and I've dealt with depression and I've noticed just because I think I'm a little hypersensitive to issues of race because in our school district, we are doing an incredible amount of racial equity work and such. And one of the first things I noticed when I went to a partial hospitalization program, I was there three weeks with people coming and going because their three weeks all started on a different day than my three weeks. And I saw one black man there who was there for two days and then gone. I go to a depression and anxiety group, a men's group. I still go every, it's twice a month. And every once in a while, all the groups, so there are probably like 10 different groups, they all get together for a breakfast. Never have I seen a person of color there or a black man in particular. And I believe, I would imagine, and and it's easy for me to say as a white male, my perspective is very different, but I would imagine that the stigma towards male depression is even that much more challenging for a black man. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the stigma being a black man with a mental illness of depression. Well, first of all, thank you so much for bringing up the subject. I love, I love, I love that you go deep like this. Like I really love being on your show here. So thank you you, uh, uh, for that. It's, it's a real topic and it's something that I've had to look at for myself and explore in some of my writing. One of the things that I have learned through just digging through sources for articles and interviews is black people have a culture of honor, meaning we, our, bud, our blood boils when we feel disrespected. You know, oh, yeah. and, and, and we have a, a strong sense of pride in who we are. And it's part of our culture to appear strong to each other and displaying, displaying feelings, uh, a man displaying feelings goes directly against the hyper masculine image of a quote unquote strong black man that's constantly portrayed by the media that's constantly talked about amongst black culture. And I was digging into this one day. I said, all right, strong black man, what is it? So I go to Google, right? If you need the answer, you go to Google. And so I go to Google, type in strong black man. I could not find an exact definition for it, meaning there is no real definition for it. Right. (laughs) You know, and it's, it's a term that is thrown around in our culture. And what I think that, uh, my fellow black people 
need to do is recognize that we have a cultural habit of trying to look good to each other and look a certain way, and that is actually causing more harm than good. And until we can get to that point where we say, you know what, I'm not less of a man because I'm in emotional pain. I'm not less of a provider. We're not going to see change. And I think it's starting to happen. I'm really grateful for Kanye West, who uh, came out with a new album. And yeah. oh, he's, he's, he's stirring up some stuff. I listened to the album, by the way, and I'm a Kanye West fan for the record. And I, I thought it was really interesting. One thing um, he did is, is provoked a lot of people with saying that being bipolar was his superpower. And, you know, the one thing I could say on a positive note, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing doesn't matter. But the fact is he's talking about mental health and he's a black man. And I think that has caused a real stir in the black community right now. Oh, absolutely. It seems to me like the Catholic church seems pretty big or or religion and the black culture. And do black people in general feel like you can pray it away? You know, uh, I'll say this. There there are a (laughs) a lot of conservative people who are conservative in the sense of uh, conservative Christians who seem to have that belief to what percentage, I don't know. Right. Um, and, and, and I, you know, how can I put it as much as I disagree with it? I, that's their belief. And yes. You know, I'm not going to try to change it. One thing that um, does happen in black churches is yes, it's, it's not talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people think if you've got a, a, a mental health challenge. Yes, it needs to be prayed away. But again, one of the things that's also popular in black churches, and again, I'm speaking from opinion as a non-church person. Okay. What right. I've seen in churches is again, people looking good to each other. Um, I have a, I have a pastor that calls me a lot cause he's in a bad place. And right. I have to always say to him, man, you're the, why can't you talk about this? Yeah. You know, like what's, what's the problem? Actually, you'll appreciate this. I got to speak to a group of black pastors and man, that might have been the toughest speech I ever gave. Wow. I I just took off my jacket and sat down for this one. And the organization that that brought me in, they bring me in a lot for different events. They they brought me in for this one. And I'm thinking they're never gonna have me back after this. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, so these pastors come in the room looking great. And before they came in the room, the leader of this group of black pastors came backstage to me and said, So Mike, you know, thank you for being here. What are you gonna talk about? And I told him a few things, a little bit about what you know you and I talked about. And he said to me, you don't say that to black pastors. That's what he said to me. Wow. And I actually responded with, I'll say whatever the F I want. I'm your speaker. <laughs> oh. And you probably weren't invited back. <laughs> well, actually, no, they still bring me back for things here and there. But um, <laughs> I, I spoke to this group of pastors and I said to them, very honestly, they're looking for, they're, they're coming to me looking for solutions to help the people in their church. And I said, I can break this down for you in five minutes, people. I said, I looked at them and I said, if you want to see what the problem is in your church and why people aren't talking about it, you need to walk out of this room right now, go in the bathroom and look in the mirror. That's the problem. I was wondering if you were going to say that. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And I said, until you can stop being a pussy and just tell the truth from the pulpit, no one's going to talk to you about it. Because you're trying to look good like you got nothing going on with you. And you know what? That's not your average person. Let them know you're human. It's okay. And I said, I dare you to go get mental health treatment. I dare you to get a psych evaluation and tell your congregation about that. You want to talk about a quiet room, by the way? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but, but you know what? I, 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 said, I said what I needed to say for a reason. I, and one of the reasons I speak is I don't look for applause 
I mean, I like it when I get it, but I don't look for it. I'm looking to, to, to make change. Right. And that's the way we're going to do it. Yeah. That's fantastic. That is exactly what they needed to hear. Did, uh, did you get any response from them? Did anybody reach out to you later to say like, Hey, I've been really thinking about this or what was the aftermath like? You'll love it. Two, two actually just came up to me out of this big group. Two, two came up to me and whispered in my ear, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Oh but, my you know, goodness. I, and, and that's why I appreciate you bringing this up because it's something that needs to be talked out about in the black community, actually in all communities. And I want to say this, different communities have different struggles with this. One community we could actually talk about that I'm fairly close to is the Orthodox Jewish community. This, okay. is, this is, I think, an even worse issue in that community because a lot of the rules and tradition around marriage mean pairing up with a partner that has no history of mental health conditions for certain Orthodox groups. Right. And, you know, come on, like, what does that do to people? And there's a lot of challenges with suicide going on in that community right now that no one is doing anything about. And they are my neighbors in New York, in my neighborhood, and it really scares me. Wow. You're putting yourself out there. Talk about the Brene Brown stuff and vulnerability is another piece she talks about. Yep. You are making yourself vulnerable. First of all, being up on a stage as a, a large black man crying, right? Which I think yep. is phenomenal. I mean, you're a role model. It's okay for men, black men too, to show emotions and to cry. And that's okay. And you're telling the pastors like it is like people need to hear from you about your challenges as well and that it's okay and actually that praying it away isn't enough. Like if you want to put it in your prayers, that's great. But there are some other pieces that you're probably going to have to do. Absolutely. Um, wow, that is, uh, that's awesome. So kudos to you for bringing that topic to them. And, uh, and thank you for sharing um, those pieces with me. So um, before we uh, part ways, I'm curious, do you have any kind of final thoughts Thoughts, uh, suggestions, pieces of advice for listeners who might be in a really challenging spot right now? Well, if you are listening to this and you're struggling with a mental health challenge, I encourage you to get help if you are not professional help. You know, we like to think we can solve things in our head and we know the answers, but your head is your worst place to be when you're struggling with a mental health challenge because you get delusional with decisions and, and these, these challenges need to be worked out with professionals. And if you don't find the right therapist right away, don't, that's okay. It's like dating. Sometimes it just takes a little and you need to be patient with that. The other thing I want to say is to the people listening who love someone with a challenge and go, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know what to do. The best thing in my opinion that someone can do who loves someone with a challenge, a mental health challenge is get help for themselves get professional help for themselves. Because if you're a parent listening and you're struggling with a child who's going through, going through a lot and you don't know what to do, start getting mental health help for yourself. Because what you'll do is gain some self-awareness and you'll start to engage in a self-care habit that your child will see. And that's one of the best ways that you can help them. Ah, fantastic advice. Um, really good advice. And, uh, I love what you said about a therapist to write like, you're going to want a psychologist, a therapist that you click with, really, right, that you can open <laughs> up to. And I usually say, you know, give it a few sessions, a try, give them a chance. And if it doesn't work, like you said, it's kind of like dating. 
Find, try another one and don't give up on therapy in general. Give up on that therapist, maybe. Yep. Um, I left one pretty quickly because every time I saw him, the very first 10 minutes was him reading our notes from the last session out loud. And I was like, oh, my goodness, really? So um, I decided, you know, I gave him a chance and then I took off and found somebody else. And it is kind of a bummer to have to start over. And I get that. And it is so well worth it when you do find that person you can click with. Yes, absolutely. And one final thing I just want to add, actually, is to remind yourself that this is a process not a destination. Um, working through these challenges is a step-by-step thing that takes place over a long period of yeah. time. Yeah, It's not something you can just resolve right away. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, hey, I really, really appreciate the time you've spent with me here. It's been great to get to know you even better than I had from our short time at the conference. I want to put a, a little plug in for you too. I know I mentioned a couple times seeing you in front of the large group and you are just you're energetic you're passionate you are vulnerable and i know that you do um, public speaking uh often and people can find that you also have a website mikevini.com right yes that's my website yeah so everybody uh, check out mikevini.com if you need an inspirational speaker around um depression or mental wellness uh check out mike for sure Check out his book, Transforming Stigma, How to Become a Mental Wellness Superhero. Um, And Mike, I just want to thank you again for the time and for the work and advocacy you do. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.